We are back with our study, our men's breakfast study of the book of 1 John here at the Rock Community Church. Uh, We are going to be finishing up chapter 3 of 1 John. So we're going to be examining 1 John chapter 3 verses 19 through 24. So I'm going to read our passage and then we'll jump in and start dissecting it. So 1 John 3 starting in verse 19. Actually, I, I'm going to back up one verse just to give us a little bit of context. I'm going I'm to back up to verse 18. So it says, Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. We will know by this that we are of the truth, and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God, and whatever whatever we ask, we receive from Him, because we keep His commandments and do the things that are pleasing in His sight. This is the commandment, that we believe in the name of His Son, Jesus Christ, and love one another, just as He commanded us. The one who keeps His commandments abides in Him, and He in Him. We know by this that he abides in us by the spirit whom he has given us. Well, let me start off by saying that this for me was a very interesting study. It was, I learned quite a bit as I studied this passage. My prayer is that you do as well, uh, that you uh, and I can grow to know more about our Lord and who he is and what it is uh, that he has done for us. Uh, th- th- this study actually uh, enlightened my heart to some of those things about all that he, all that it is that he has truly done for us. This is an amazing passage. The first verse deals with assurance of salvation. So verse nineteen deals with our assurance of our salvation. Right? It says, "We will know by this that we are of the truth." And will assure our heart before him. Going into verse 20, it says, In whatever our heart condemns us. You know, strong preaching, strong Bible teaching of, you know, of God's word, uh, legitimate calls to holiness will and should create an environment where assurance becomes a fragile thing. Assurance of our salvation becomes fragile when when we're under strong preaching and teaching of God's Word, when we're being called to holiness. Our assurance is going to be, it's going to feel fragile. You know, I, I love to go running. That's one of my favorite things to do. In fact, I went running just before I started recording this podcast, uh, and one of I, I listen to a lot of podcasts when I go running. That's one of the things I do. Sometimes I'll listen to podcasts. Uh, sometimes I just pray as I run. Um, other times I listen to podcasts, and uh, usually it's uh, sermons or Bible teachings or or some sort of you know biblical Christian discussion on a podcast. But I also listen to some uh, a few secular podcasts. One of the podcasts I listen to is is an entrepreneur, I won't give his name, but uh, some of you may have heard of him or maybe even listened to him. But he's an entrepreneur and he talks a lot about business and he talks a lot about 
a little bit about politics and just about everyday things sometimes. He's a very interesting guy. But he recently said uh, that when he and his wife first bought the house in the area in Los Angeles that they live in, they started church shopping, shopping for a new church. And he said that they went to 26 churches before they finally decided on one. And the reason was is because many of the churches they visited kept talking about sin and about hell, eternal punishment. He said some of them he just didn't like the style of music or the style of preaching or whatever whatever it was, but uh, some of them he didn't like hearing about sin and about hell. That's a sad thing. That's a sad thing. And unfortunately, so many believers would probably have based their decision on a church in the same way. If we are calling people to obedience to Christ, and if we're taking 1 John at its word when it says that the one who practices sin is of the devil, then you better believe that people are going to struggle with their assurance. We, we are naturally going to struggle with that. We, we really shouldn't, but it's going to happen because, you know, we do sin. We don't, we're not perfect. Of course, the key word is practices sin. The one who practices sin is of the devil. In other words, the one who has a pattern of sin in their life, where it's unrepentant, where it's continual, where it, it, there's no repentance, there's no conviction. It's just a, a practice, a pattern of sin in your life. That's, those are the ones who are of the devil. But nevertheless, when we take First John at its word, assurance of our salvation will be fragile. And unfortunately, the church, the greater church, and, and I'm t- really talking about the American church, uh, has produced such a superficial version of the gospel that many people who call themselves Christians, I believe, they're walking around with a false assurance of their salvation. They're the ones in Matthew 7 who are going to say, Lord, Lord, did we not do all these things in your name? And Jesus is going to say, depart from me, I never knew you. You who practice lawlessness. You know, people, they just, so many people, so many people who, who proclaim to be followers of Christ, they just don't understand the true gospel. They don't understand that it's, it's, it's actually very hard to believe the true gospel. It's not easy. None of this easy believism stuff. It's hard to believe the true gospel. They, and people don't understand that. People don't understand the reality of sin and what it means, how offensive it is to God. They don't understand the high cost of discipleship or the lordship of Christ, right? They don't understand that. They don't understand repentance. They don't understand obedience, what it means to be obedient. And I believe that all this can be put under the umbrella that people just don't understand the holiness of God. They're not taught properly, and so there's a high level of false assurance in the church.
Remember Luke 9, 23, Jesus said this, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross daily, and follow me. People just don't understand what that means. Deny yourself. That's pretty self-explanatory. Take up your cross daily. That means sacrificing, maybe even to the point of death. That's what the, the cross would have meant to the people who heard that in Jesus' time. Taking up your cross means humiliation. It means death and following Jesus. And so there's really no concern for salvation in a, in a typical church in this country. You know, I, I thank God for the pastors, including our pastor, Pastor Drew, who does not shy away from preaching the difficult things and doing it in, in a loving, gentle way. A firm way, but a loving way. A gentle way. And so we, we may have... You know, in any church, there's false converts that are deceiving themselves, even even at our church, I would imagine. But at our church, it's not because they're not being told the truth. That's That's for certain. Unfortunately, in many churches, people are not being told the truth. And so, in verses 19 and 20, let me read those again. It says, We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. He says, we are assured by this. By this. Verse 24, the one who keeps his commandments abides in him and God in him. We know by this that he abides in us, by the Spirit whom he has given us. We know by this that he abides in us. What does he mean by this? We know by this. Why are we assured? Why do we know we're saved? Well, John is giving us the reasons here. He's giving us the reasons why we know we are saved. And so begs the question, what are those reasons? Well, let's back up to verse 10 in chapter 3. Again, we see that that familiar term by this so in verse 10 he says by this the children of god and the children of the devil are obvious anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of god nor the one who does not love his brother so not practicing righteousness but for our purposes today you know that's the first reason not practicing righteousness but for our purposes today nor the one who does not love his brother It's love for the brethren, love for other Christians. By this, the children of God and the children of the devil are obvious. Anyone who does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor the one who does not love his brother. And then verse 11, For this is the message which you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. Love for other believers. By this we will know that we are saved. What about verse 14? We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brethren. He who does not love abides in death. And then verse 18. Little children, let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and in truth. That's a good one. It's one of my favorite verses in all of Scripture. 
It's not love with word or with tongue. It's love in deed and truth. Love for other Christians. That's how, that's one reason we know we are saved. You know, I've said this many times uh, that I, I believe love is the supreme test for one's salvation. It's the ultimate test. Jonathan Edwards, uh, in fact, he's, I, I, I've heard some snippets of, of, uh, of some writings of his, sermons, perhaps, of Jonathan Edwards, and he says the same thing, that love is the supreme test to determine if someone's saved. All right, when you got saved, suddenly people that you never wanted anything to do with all of a sudden you find yourself loving them. You love the brethren. You love your fellow believers. And this is, this is the transformation of the heart where you now have a love for God's people that you never had before. And it's loving in deed and in truth. It's not just love in, in what you say. It's not just saying, I love you. It's it's loving them indeed. It's, it's doing things sacrificially. And it's loving people in truth, giving them the truth, no matter what that is. You know, is to, to give someone a watered-down gospel to tell them that repentance is not necessary, is that a loving thing? I would say no. You're not giving them what they need for salvation. That's not loving. loving them in deed and in truth. Give them the truth, the gospel. And part of that truth is informing them that they're a sinner. Maybe it's not even informing them. It's, you know, deep down we intrinsically know this, that we have fallen short of God's glory and we just need to illuminate their hearts to that, perhaps. You can determine the validity of someone's claim to being a disciple of Christ by how they love the brethren, by how sacrificial they are towards other believers, and by how passionate and affectionate they are towards other believers. It's all about love. Here's another, here's another reason how we can know we are saved. It's gratitude for God's grace. Gratitude for God's grace. Let's, uh, let's read verses 19 and 20 again. Uh, it says, We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before Him in whatever our heart condemns us. For God is greater than our heart and knows all things. This is, this is very powerful, but this is also very encouraging. And this is the point in my study where I learned a lot, okay? This, this has to do with our conscience, right? Where he says, we will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. We, we sin, right? As believers, we still sin. And so... Our conscience is activated when we sin. The conscience, the conscience of a Christian is working 
is working at full speed, right? That's working overtime, man. When you became a Christian, your conscience kicked it into high gear. You had a conscience before, and as a believer, that conscience was magnified. And so we have a gratitude for God's grace as believers because we have a very sensitive conscience. Every person is born with a conscience, okay? It, it's that, the, the conscience is it's our ability to recognize our heart, right? Our heart attitude, what's going on in our heart. Romans 2.15 says, They, the Gentiles, show the work of the law written in their hearts, their conscience bearing witness and their thoughts alternately accusing or else defending them. The conscience observes what we do and gives testimony to us about what we do. It gives testimony about our sin or, or our obedience. And it happens in our minds, right? It happens in our, in our thoughts. Our conscience informs us, it accuses us, it condemns us, and it indicts us. And if we persist in a particular sin, then the activity of our conscience, right, once it's activated, it can ultimately lead to depression. If we persist in a particular sin, our conscience is going to be constantly informing, accusing, condemning, indicting us constantly if we're persisting in sin. And it will ultimately lead to depression, potentially. So the conscience then is our warning system. Without it, the the amount of evil in this world, the amount of chaos in this world would be unimaginable. Can you imagine if nobody had a conscience? (laughs) It'd be chaos. Absolute chaos. A good analogy would be our, our nervous system, right? Uh, A a person who feels no pain, physical pain, would ultimately and inevitably kill themselves, right? If your nerves don't warn you that something is wrong, you will eventually do so much harm to yourself that you would die because you can't feel pain. That's essentially what leprosy in Jesus' time was. It was a a deadening of the nerves so that uh, these lepers, you know, they wouldn't feel pain and they would have all these injuries all over their body. They would drink hot liquid and they would literally scorch their throats. And so they became very disfigured, very, um, not, not a sight to behold really. And they were essentially hurting themselves to death. Pain warns the body and the conscience warns the soul. It's a our conscience is a component of what we call common grace, right? Common grace that the Lord gives to every human being, regardless of whether or not they're a believer, right? Common grace would be, you know, the sun coming up every day, the air we breathe, food on the table, um, you know, family, love, all these things that every person uh, can receive and does receive. Um, We... We, our conscience is also a component of common grace. Everyone has a conscience. So Satan 
Satan wants to desensitize the conscience of the believer. He wants to, he wants to desensitize our conscience, and he does so in a few ways. First, he, does, he, he desensitizes our conscience by misinformation, right? Lowering the standard of morality. If you just take the, the period of time between uh, the, fifth, the 1950s and the 1970s, you would see a huge uh, degrading of morality in the United States. And then since the 70s, it's just gotten worse and worse. Um, so misinformation is, is one way that Satan desensitizes our conscience. But he also does it by silencing our conscience, right? You ever been told that you shouldn't feel guilty about certain things? Silencing the conscience. You ever been told about self-esteem? You know, we think of self-esteem as a good thing, but really that's silencing our conscience. Don't feel guilty. You know, you're a good person. You deserve good things. That's self-esteem. Truth is, we don't deserve good things. We deserve punishment, eternal punishment. But God is graceful. He's given us common grace. And for the believer, he's given us eternal grace. Silencing the conscience. The sweetest teacher I ever had, my fourth grade teacher, sweetest teacher I ever had. Her name was Mrs. Brookhart. And I remember we, you know, we... uh, we would we would read these um, short stories and poems and stuff and and one of the uh, short stories we read and studied as a as a class was uh, an excerpt from Jonathan Edwards' sermon "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God," right? The great Puritan preacher Jonathan Edwards and his famous sermon "Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God" and it it talked about sin and it talked about God's wrath. And this sweet, sweet lady wouldn't hurt a fly. After we read this, she told us that this was all a bunch of nonsense, this, this sermon. That we don't deserve hell, that we deserve good things because we're good little boys and girls. And I just can remember the anger in her face. She didn't yell, she didn't raise her voice because that wasn't who she was. But her voice did change, and the look on her face was a look I had never seen, and I, and I never saw after that. It made a huge impression on me because <laughs> I never saw this woman angry. Even when we would do bad things, she just never got angry. But she was angry when we read this sermon. Very angry. And that's Satan's goal, silencing our conscience. Another way Satan desensitizes the conscience of the believer is searing the conscience, right? Searing the conscience, which 1 Timothy 4.2 talks about. It talks about our conscience being seared, right, or desensitized. When something's been burned over and over, right, your nerves become dead. I have a couple of scars. Uh, I used to, my sport of choice as a teenager was uh, bicycle racing, road racing, and so crashes are a big big part of that sport and you know you you fall at 30 miles an hour and you're going to get what they call road rash scrapes all over your skin right all over your legs arms whatever and i have some scars that were pretty you know cuts that were pretty deep uh 
um, and the scar tissue formed over them, and I literally have no feeling where that scar tissue is. The nerves became dead, and our conscience can become seared. Right When we see something over and over and over, or we hear something over and over and over, or we say or do something over and over and over, our conscience can become seared, desensitized. So misinformation, silencing the conscience, and searing the conscience are the ways that Satan wants to desensitize our conscience. Look, when you became a believer, your conscience became much more active. Much more active. Galatians 2.19 says, Through the law of God, I died to the law so that I might live to God. Paul's saying his conscience became so active that it killed him. It killed him. But, just like Jesus, he was raised so that he might live to God. His old self died. His new self lived to God. And so we get to the we got to the point as a believer, right, where we said, "Lord, I know I'm a sinner. My conscience is overactivated right now. Have mercy on me, Lord." And so God reached down and pulled us out of the the depths of our sinfulness, that abyss that we were in. He forgave our sins and he gave us a new heart. He brought us to true repentance. And our conscience was a big part of that. Our conscience is a tool that God uses, right? And it should, our conscience should function in a very unique way, okay? Hebrews 9.14 says this. It says, How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, Okay, how much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Up until the moment before our salvation, our conscience had accumulated an overwhelming amount of accusations, right? an overwhelming amount of indictments. And then you repented, you put your faith in Christ, you bowed down to Jesus, and His blood cleansed your conscience, it says in Hebrews 9. Let me read Hebrews 9 again. How much more will the blood of Christ cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God? When you repented, the blood of Jesus cleansed your conscience. And one of the most amazing things that happens to a a true believer is that the burden of sin is lifted. It's lifted. It's gone. You've gone from an accusing conscience that is literally overwhelming you to a cleansed conscience. Clean. Washed by the blood of Jesus. Hallelujah. Now, with that in mind, Let's reread verses 19 through 20. We will know by this that we are of the truth and will assure our heart before him in whatever our heart condemns us. For greater 
or sorry, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. We will, he says, we will know by this, by love, right? Because remember verse 18 talks about love. We will know by love that we are in God's kingdom. And if we have a pattern of sacrificial love in our hearts, we can be assured of our salvation. Our hearts may condemn us because as believers, like I said, our conscience has become super sensitive, right? So our hearts may condemn us and give us that insecurity or maybe cause us to doubt our salvation, but God will never condemn us. God will never condemn us because we are cleansed by the blood of Jesus. You know, admittedly, sometimes my conscience condemns me. And my assurance can be lost. My assurance of salvation can just, poof, disappear sometimes. My conscience tells me sometimes, hey, if you're a real Christian, that you wouldn't be speaking that way. If you were a true believer, you would not be so prideful. You wouldn't desire the approval of men. If you were a real Christian, you would not be this angry. But verse 20, thank God, says that God is greater than our heart and knows all things. Wow. God is greater than my conscience. God is greater than my heart. Romans 8.1 says, There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ. We are justified, right? Amen. Amen. Praise the Lord. Hallelujah. I mean, it doesn't get much, it doesn't get any better than that. Remember what Jesus said to Peter? He asked him, do you love me? Yes, Lord, I love you. Three times he said that. Do you love me? Yes, I love you. Peter, do you love me? Lord, I I haven't acted like I love you. In fact, I denied you three times. But Lord, you know all things. You know that I love you. And the response to Peter was, well, you're my man. Go feed my sheep. God knows the worst that's in me. He knows the worst that's in you, and yet he does not condemn us. Our hearts may condemn us, but God never will. So those are the two things in this passage that, are, that assure us of our salvation, right? Love for other Christians and gratitude for God's grace. That conscience-driven gratitude for God's grace. And there's another resulting blessing of having a pattern of love and obedience in our lives. And it, it comes in verse 22. He says, Whatever we ask, we receive from him. Because we keep his commandments and we do the things that are pleasing in his sight. So when we love and obey 
God answers our prayers. He answers our prayers. Now, you know, he doesn't, he doesn't answer the prayers of the non-believer. I don't know if you knew that. But for the believer, it says, Whatever we ask, we receive of him because we keep his commandments and do the things that are pleasing in his sight. We know that he hears our prayers and he answers them. We have at the Rock Community Church, we have a prayer team that's led by a man named Doug Renault, And he always says this. I just love the way he says it. He says, we have a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. It's amazing. That is amazing. If you think about it, that, that we can talk to God, the creator of the universe, knowing that he hears us individually. Oh, wow. I mean, little me, the creator of the universe listening to little old me. We have a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. Now, we may not like the answer we get. Sometimes the answer is no. Sometimes the answer is wait. Sometimes the answer is yes. But whatever the answer is, we know that he hears our prayers and that he answers our prayers. Even though we may not always like the answer. My daughter, uh, not too long ago, wanted to have a sleepover with her friends. And many years back, my wife and I decided that we are not going to be a family that does sleepovers. At least not allowing our children to go to sleepovers. Now, we'll have sleepovers at our house if if our kids want to have the, all their friends over and do a slumber party at our house, hey, the more the merrier. But we're not going to allow our kids to have a sleepover. And in order to just kind of avoid any awkward situations, we just made that a blanket rule. doesn't matter who their friends are, how well we know their family, or how well we don't know their family. We're just going to make that blanket rule in, in our family. My daughter, my daughter did not like that answer, but she handled it really well. I got to give her credit. She handled it really well. She was the only one that got picked up before, before midnight, and um, I picked her up at 10. And she wasn't happy, but she handled it very gracefully. I was very, I was very proud of her. We may not like the answers that God gives us. But we know that we know that he does hear us and he does answer us. First John five fourteen says, This is the confidence which we have before him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And that's the key. If we ask anything according to his will. And we know that if we do that, he will hear it. And we're going to have those requests. John, 1 John 5.15, if it's according to his will, right? If we ask according to his will, he hears us. And then in verse 15, if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests which we have asked from him. So how do you know you're a Christian? Love for the, I'm sorry, love for the brethren. Gratitude for God's grace. Boldness in prayer and obedience. 
pattern of obedience in your life. Well, I hope this study was was uh, beneficial for you. I hope that these truths penetrate your heart. I know they certainly did for me. Thanks for listening, guys, and I'll see you next time. God bless.